This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. School boards across the country often adopt zero-tolerance policies for student behavior, but increasingly over the last two decades, these policies have caused students to be suspended and sometimes expelled for minor issues. What's the wider impact of zero-tolerance? Derek Black joins us via Skype to answer that question. He's professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law and author of Ending Zero-Tolerance, the Crisis of Absolute School Discipline. Welcome to Where We Live, Derek. Thank you. Great to be here. In your book, you start off by sharing examples of students who faced overly severe punishments because of these zero-tolerance policies. There was one example that you open up with, uh, a case in Virginia. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it involved a, a young man in middle school, Benjamin Ratner, and he had a friend who had experienced suicidal tendencies in the past. I guess that's the best way to put it. And she shows up on Monday and tells him she'd been feeling suicidal over the weekend and that she'd brought a knife with her to school and was thinking about hurting herself. And so his immediate response was, can I have it? And she said, yeah, you can have it. So he goes to her locker and takes out the book binder. There's no indication that he actually saw or touched the knife, but we're told there was a knife inside the book binder. So he takes it and he puts it uh, in his own locker. And News spreads quickly in middle schools, and so uh, within an hour or so, the uh, vice principal had heard about it, and he he calls uh, Benjamin to the office and asks him whether he has the knife, and Benjamin says, yeah, it's in my locker. And I think moment number one that's so important here, the principal doesn't say, stay here, let me go get it. He says, Benjamin, will you go get it for me? And Benjamin says, sure. So the principal is clearly not seeing Benjamin as a threat. He understands this boy isn't a threat. So Benjamin goes... Uh, gets the binder, brings it back, and when he hands it over to the principal, the principal says, you know, you did the right thing, Benjamin, but I'm sorry, I've got to suspend you. At this moment in time, I'm thinking that Benjamin is a little bit confused, but he doesn't feel that his educational career has come to an end. He probably goes home, complains to his mother a bit, um, but his mother gets a call in the next day or so and says, we need you to come down to central administration because we're going to expel your son for the rest of the school year. And in fact, that's exactly what they did. So a young boy who did you know, everything the school asked him to do that posed no threat to the school and was literally trying to protect the safety and life of one of his friends was suspended or was expelled for doing so. I just can't find a reason or rationale for how that makes sense. So in the terms of, of zero tolerance, circumstances don't matter. The fact that he had a weapon and it was, uh, you know, something that he was able to get when the principal asked, that was enough for the school board to decide or rather the superintendent decided that this boy should be expelled? That was enough. They said that the rules say suspensions for weapons, and we don't care whether you're doing the right thing, the wrong thing. It was accidental, unaccidental. There was a weapon in your possession, and therefore we must uh, expel you. Uh, And in fact, there was another story, which is in in my book, uh, in, in Tennessee, where the young man, it wasn't his knife. Someone had left it in his car. He, he didn't know it was there. I uh, didn't remember it was there, whatever. And the school did not contest the fact that he didn't know the knife was there. And they still expelled him. And during the arguments over this case, the school went so far as to say that uh, initially, even if the school valedictorian was walking down the hall and someone slipped a knife unknowingly into their book bag, That would be a rule violation, and they would have the authority to expel the student for that. Um, There's just no common sense to that type of policymaking. Now, these are two examples of weapons, but there are cases where children are being suspended and expelled for minor issues. Can you walk us through some of those examples? Yeah, I mean, there's not – I wouldn't say there's a lot of statutes out there that say you must – 
expel a student for talking out in class. But there are certainly statutes out there that authorize schools to do so. So Mississippi had a statute, uh, for instance, that says that uh, districts can expel uh, habitually disruptive students. And they define habitually disruptive as being three instances of disruption in school. South Carolina currently has a statute that says the school can expel a student for any behavior that is prohibited by school board policy. So if the school board writes down, you cannot sneeze in class, the state statute grants them the authority to expel that student. And how do we get to this point? Can you walk us through the history of when you saw school boards around the country adopting these zero tolerance policies? Part of it is tied up in the get tough on crime movement. Uh, which also intersected with some unfortunate tragedies that occurred in schools that made national news, um, Columbine being one. But uh, shortly before Columbine, Congress passed legislation mandating that schools uh, expel students who brought drugs or weapons to school. Now that, you know, we could debate whether that's a good idea, bad idea. I think that's a, that's a reasonable approach. But what states did was say, well, while we're at it, while we're going to while we're at changing our statutes, statutes to suspend and expel students for that, let's just add some other stuff in there. Let's add habitually disruptive. Let's add violation of any school board rule for that matter. Um, so we got a little bit carried away there. The second major step is that uh, schools are under a tremendous amount of pressure to perform on standardized tests. Over the past 15 years uh, of No Child Left Behind, which Congress recently amended, but over the past 15 years, we've put higher and higher stakes on test scores. And, and schools are stretched to the limits. And any child who seems to be interfering with the school's ability to do its job, or for that matter, maybe they're not even interfering, they're just not that good of a student. And if they score poorly, they're going to you know, have potentially bring down our scores, you know, those schools have incentive to remove those kids as quickly as possible. So I think what we found was a perfect storm, you know, some, some zero tolerance policies on one side and uh, a lot of school pressure to perform on the other and, and not enough resources in the middle to deal with behavioral problems that schools have. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Derek Black. He's professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law and author of a new book, Ending Zero Tolerance, The Crisis of Absolute School Discipline. Uh, Derek, I wanted to turn to, um, we talked about when zero tolerance policies started to become more uh, commonplace. But what about the use of, of, of law enforcement that are located um, you know, at these schools, these, the idea of a school resource officer, SROs, how has that um, changed the dynamic of when kids are you know, mis- misbehaving in school and how it could escalate to being arrested? Yes, there's a couple of things going on there. I think the school resource officer is potentially a more difficult problem to solve simply because there's a money incentive there. After the Columbine uh, tragedy, there there was a lot more federal money available um, and also state money available to put SROs in the school, right? So we've got money there. Why not spend it, right? Do you need a third TV in your house? No, but if Best Buy is going to let you have it for 99 bucks, you know, maybe you'll take it. Uh, and I think we sort of fell into that trap with, with school resource officers. But there's also the sort of real visceral fear that parents uh, experience that they say, you know, if there's a minuscule chance of my child being harmed at school, I want a, a police officer there. But I would emphasize that schools still to this day remain the safest place kids can be. Kids are more likely to get hurt at home 
fighting with their brother or sister or just messing in their parents' closet um, than they are at school. So schools, notwithstanding the tragedies we've seen, are still safe places. And these school resource officers, as you as you point out, they come with burdens as well as benefits. And the burden is, is that children are going to be confronted with violence, that people who are not properly trained to deal with children are, are, are going to overreact. And, and just in the last month, I've written three stories uh, about either new lawsuits against states and school districts for excessive force by officers or cases going to trial. And it, it, it's really with the advent of the, of the cell phone is getting documented more and more often. When we talk about zero tolerance policies, I mean, who are the students that are most affected by this, that are disproportionately affected? Well, you know, the interesting fact is that a lot of civil rights advocates initially thought that a zero tolerance approach might actually bring down racial disparities, right? So that if everyone is punished the same, white and African-American students will have similar discipline rates, potentially. But what we found is that racial bias doesn't happen at the principal's often office as often as it happens at the classroom level. So prior to zero tolerance, if you had a teacher who perpetually, you know, referred African-American children for low-level stuff to the office, the principal could counteract that. He could send them back or say, you know, we're we're not going to punish them for that. But in the age of, of zero tolerance, where we have board policies and state policies mandating punishment, if the teacher, through for racially biased or other reasons, sends a kid to, to, to the office, they're going to get in trouble for it. So what we've seen is that zero tolerance has amplified the disparities uh, in, in school suspensions and expulsions. And, you know, across the nations, a- African-Americans are two to six times as likely to be suspended or expelled uh, as white students. And these are the same kids that we see in the so-called school-to-prison pipeline? Yeah, that's correct. The decision to suspend a child one time makes it far more likely that that same child will be suspended or expelled in the next year. And that drastically increases uh, dropout rates, that drastically increases interaction with the juvenile justice system, it drastically increases uh, high school dropout, unemployment. And so, yes, one act to suspend or expel a student has this long-term ripple effect. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, we're speaking with Derek Black, professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law, author of Ending Zero Tolerance, the Crisis of Absolute School Discipline. You know, Derek, I should have asked you this earlier. What made you interested in exploring how these policies have impacted um, student outcomes through the years? Well, you know, I had an unusual random experience early in my career, which was uh, there was a group of about 10 boys who had been expelled from a school in Tennessee, and they just needed anyone who would take their case to take it. And so I had a slow time in my case docket at the moment, so I went down there and represented them. Uh, the first thing that struck me odd about this was, you know, gangs are not good, I understand that, but simply being in a gang is not the violation of any school rule or even criminal law, for that matter. Uh, and, and in effect, the school really had simply said, well, one of these kids has done something wrong, and we're just going to expel them all. And I went down there and advocated for those those young men as, as best I could, and in fact got one of the school administrators, the principal, to admit that one of the boys who had been uh, expelled was not even present at the place where the altercation had occurred. And I thought, well, you know what? I couldn't save uh, all 10 boys, but maybe I saved one of them. And you know what? They expelled him anyway. And it just blew my mind that they had decided that they were done with these boys. And it didn't matter 
what the law said. It didn't matter what these boys had done or not done. Uh, they wanted to get rid of them. And, you know, that sort of propelled me on to a, to a lot of research over the years. And also uh, sympathy to the communities who, who really are struggling with this on, on a daily basis. Uh, you know, the fight to end zero tolerance really is a grassroots movement that, you know, mothers and fathers and local communities across the nation have said, you know, we've got to come together and stand in opposition to this. And this is a movement that's been going on uh, for well over a decade now, but it, it's really only now starting to gain a little bit of traction. And what has been the catalyst to that, that people are, are realizing that this is not the way to be, uh, I guess, uh, handling uh, behavior issues that pop up, some less severe, some more severe? Well, I think we've gotten a lot better social science over the last decade that's helped us understand how counterproductive uh, suspension and expulsion is. That's one. Uh, number two is, is sort of the political pressure that, that some families have been able to, to exert. Um, but I think, to be quite honest, that schools themselves dug themselves into such a deep hole that they began to realize, some of them began to realize, we cannot operate an educational system like this anymore. There, uh, four years ago, there were a number of middle schools in the District of Columbia that handed out more suspensions than they had students. Right? School with 300 students that handed out uh, 480 or 500 suspensions over the course of a year. You can't operate a school system that way. And, you know, lots of arrests, right? It is disruptive to suspend and expel that many students. And um, I think they realize that we've got to do something different, right? Um, or our schools are just going to implode on themselves. So I think we've, we've found change coming from a few different places. You're talking with us, and we're here in, in Connecticut, and I know that this has been an issue that... Um policymakers and advocates for children have raised in recent years, especially with um, when those started looking at the data, uh, and especially children that were in kindergarten, first, second grade, being suspended. Um, so I'm just curious, when, you, when you've done your research, which states are out there that are actually you know, making some change on the zero tolerance uh, policy and realizing that you know, it only devastates a child's future if they continue to be suspended. Uh, maybe that leads them to drop out, um, you know, and they could end up in, in prison down the road. I would say that we've got a couple of different activities happening at the state level. We've got a few states that have begun to say, if we're talking about pre-K kids, if we're talking about second and third graders, we ought to just take them off the board. There's no good reason to suspend or expel them. So California passed a statute uh, about two years ago banning suspension and expulsion for kids in third grade or lower. Last week, New Jersey did the same. A couple other states have done that. So that's a step in the right direction. You know, discipline problems and high discipline rates really occur in, in middle and high school. So, you know, that's not a huge change, but, but it's a step in, in the right direction. We've got a lot of uh, state departments of education that are beginning to invest in uh, positive behavioral supports a lot more. Minnesota is a good example of that. I also know that, that Connecticut uh, has been looking at this issue through, through data pretty closely and has issued some reports. I'm not sure if they've taken any official action. But I, I think all the states um, know that there's a problem here, but there's a little bit of hesitancy about how exactly to fix the problem um, because there is going to be pushback, right, from, from, from teachers, for instance, that, that maybe misinterpret what this agenda is about, right? Um, if, if what the policy is is that we simply say, you cannot suspend and expel students anymore, see you later, we're done, that's actually not going to help anyone, to be, to be honest, right? 
what we need to do is build a better environment. And stopping suspension and expulsions all alone won't do that. That will just leave teachers saddled with students in the room misbehaving and teachers who are not prepared to deal with that. So we have to start investing in what we call positive behavioral supports that try to find out what's the root of the behavioral problem. Is it something we can fix with social services? Is it something we can fix with counseling? Is it just that the child is experiencing learning problems and we need to address that? So that's one set of strategies when we think about. And then there's also what we call restorative justice practices that, that help the student better understand their behavior, how they're harming themselves and harming their others, and try to deal with conflict in a civil way. So there are strategies out there, but we have to bring down suspension and expulsion at the same time that we implement those strategies. Otherwise, we're, we're going to make things worse for everyone involved. You mentioned the restorative justice. Here in Connecticut, we have what are known as JRBs or juvenile review boards. And so exactly what you're talking about where uh, community members sit around a table and there's a parent with a child who may have gotten in trouble in school or maybe committed a, a misdemeanor and ways to keep these, to have, help the children um, accept what they did was wrong, understand the consequences, but to keep them out of the juvenile court system. Because once they go in there, we hear from advocates and those who work in the, the judicial system that, you know, they're likely to, um, you know, continue to be um, referred back to court and then later um, end up in prison. Yeah, that, that's correct. And so what we have found is this, that in schools that implement these programs well, that we end up having lower suspension rates, lower expulsion rates, and much more positive educational environments. And I think that's the key. Suspension and expulsion doesn't just harm the misbehaving student. It harms the well-behaved students. Uh, The well-behaved students see the injustice in our current zero-tolerance policies. And they don't see the schools trying to help them. They see the schools trying to hurt their friends, to expel their friends, to send their friends to juvenile justice system. So everyone is harmed by that. But when we deal with with discipline appropriately, when we try to make a more positive environment, not only are we helping the misbehaving student, we are helping the well-behaved student have the type of environment that they need to learn well. And what's the role of the courts, since I I did mention um, the court system here in Connecticut and how they collaborate um, with community organizations to try to keep kids out of the juvenile court system. Um, But I was thinking to some of the children, some of the cases you mentioned where kids find themselves expelled and and, maybe they don't have a parent that knows how to work with an attorney and, and bring this to the court's attention. But if a case like this is before a court, how are they likely to rule? Well, unfortunately, over the last four decades, courts have become more and more reluctant uh, to intervene in school discipline. Uh, In the 1970s, they were pretty aggressive, but starting in about the 80s, they just began to look the other way. And so policymakers and school uh, boards have had authority to do whatever they want with kids anytime they want. And, you know, I want to be clear. I think that the people on the scene, the teachers, the parents, the students, those are the ones that are in the best position to know what's right to do. But it's always dangerous when there's no limits to authority, right? That no one's looking over your shoulder because then you get in the habit of just doing what you want to do or doing what you think is efficient or expedient. And so my critique of the courts or my idea is not that they should be intervening on a regular basis, but that they need to set the outer boundaries of permissible conduct. So I talk about the statutes, the new ones in California and New Jersey, where they have now said we're not going to expel pre-kindergarten students anymore. Well, I would put to you that a court who seriously looked at the issues and the evidence uh, could have long ago said that there is no legitimate basis 
for a public school in the United States of America to kick a pre-kindergarten child out of school because they're disruptive. That's what five-year-old kids do. They disobey. They disrupt. They talk. They try to learn the limits of social interaction and boundaries. But our courts haven't done that. And when our courts don't step in and at least set some outer boundaries, uh, I think the schools stop to look at stop looking at children as individuals. They stop looking at whether the student intentionally violated the rule, whether the student uh, is has problems going on in their life that are interacting here. So, um, what I really call for is courts to help schools do their job better, not for courts to do schools' jobs for them. I want to thank Derek Black, who joined us via Skype. He's professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law and author of the new book, Ending Zero Tolerance, The Crisis of Absolute School Discipline. Derek, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Coming up, we'll talk about zero tolerance policies in Connecticut and whether the state has seen declines in school-based arrests, and later, a look at intervention efforts in Connecticut's judicial branch, meant to keep kids out of juvenile court. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from author Derek Black on the long-term impacts of zero-tolerance policies on students. We wanted to know whether Connecticut has made changes to similar policies here, including how schools use out-of-school suspension. Are you a parent who is critical of the discipline approaches taken by your child's school? Or have you worked in schools and believe more support needs to be given to staff when behavior problems among students come up? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me now in studio is Mickey Kramer, Associate Child Advocate for the State of Connecticut, and George Sagai, Professor of Special Education at the University of Connecticut, also Director of the Center for Behavioral Education and Research, Co-Director of the Center of Positive Behavioral Interventions and Supports. Welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'll start with you, Mickey. Um, You're from the Office of Child Advocate. We know that you get lots of calls, especially from parents. Mm -hmm. Um, When their children have been suspended, what are they telling you when they call? So we actually um, have been looking at this issue in Connecticut since 2005, and I remember actually distinctly getting that first call um, from a parent, and we were so stunned in the classroom. It was a kindergarten student who um, who was suspended for, I believe, five to ten days. Um, and we were we were like, how can you suspend a kindergarten student? And when we started to ask questions about it way back in 2005, we learned that um, at that within that time period that that there had been you know over 400 kindergartners that had been suspended or expelled. And so we started to look into it because we have unique access to information. And we presumed that a number of those kids were kids who were experiencing significant distress um, whether in the classroom, outside of the classroom, in the community, and at home. Um, we continue to get um, a, a number of calls. In fact, probably the, the number one call to our office is from somebody expressing concern about their child's education whether it be special education or regular education, something's going on at school. Um, And we get a fair number of calls um, from parents um, of children of all ages, but too many calls from parents of very young children who are uh, expressing concern about either a threat of um, a, a suspension based on behaviors that are being demonstrated in the classroom or actually the child has been suspended and they're asking us to help them figure out what do they do about that. 
Um, so, explain. Uh, you mentioned there was disbelief when you hear that you know kids from preschool to second grade are getting suspended. But you know, on the flip side, you know, people realize that teachers have a job to do. Sure. And when disruptive behaviors show up in the classroom, you know, what are the right. options for them? So, again, explain from your uh, perspective right. as associate child advocate, why is it problematic when you have young children being suspended? Right. So um, if we look at the information that we have available to us regarding the life experience of children attending schools, right? So we know that about half of of all kids have experienced trauma, and and in certain areas, it's two-thirds of children. And we have to really think about what do we know about children and, and why do they behave the way they do? So when a very young child, and, and so for the age group that I'm talking about, we're talking about three-year-olds through seven-year-olds. And so if a child comes into school and is so disruptive or so inappropriate, and they can be, I mean, let's not, you know, and we've heard stories from teachers. We actually talk to teachers. We talk to paraprofessionals. We talk to school administrators, special education administrators, um, and they tell us what goes on in the classroom. It is scary, and it is very disruptive. It's very scary to the other children in the classroom. And what we're asking folks to do is just stop, take a breath, and say, not necessarily you know, respond to what the kid, the child did, but ask what happened to that child? Why would a child, a, such a young child, behave that way? And that's what we're trying to get at, is to get people to be thoughtful and, 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 and then, you know, really, um, instead of suspending the child, because we've already heard from the previous caller that, in fact, a single suspension is is an indicator of future problems within school, and and so um, so and we know that it's also very disproportionate. Um, you know that the children, young boys of color in particular, are the most likely to get suspended or expelled. So so we really want for folks to stop and 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 use whatever it, you know the tools in their toolbox. And sometimes they don't have the tools, but in fact the community toolbox to be able to do an assessment of what's going on with this child. And we inevitably know something's going on with that child. This will be a good time to bring in our next guest, uh, George Sagai, professor of special ed at the University of Connecticut, also director of the Center for Behavioral Education and Research and co-director of the Center of Positive Behavioral Interventions and Supports. So you're the guy that teachers and schools can rely on to help them, give them resources to deal with this kind of behavior. Oh, we try. (laughs) Yeah. So, so walk us through. Um, we, so again, we know that you know kids do act up. It's part of um, growing up, learning how to control feelings. But when it's in the classroom, you know, what are some of the ways that schools can respond to children that are that are acting up this way? Right. Well, let me step back a little bit and just add on to something that was said earlier, and that is, I think it's really important to understand that academic success is linked to social behavior success. And if kids don't have the school skills to be able to navigate the classroom, school, personal, interpersonal environment of the classroom, they're going to have trouble engaging on the academic side. So I think that's why we probably need to start thinking about teaching social skills, developing the social-emotional learning side of kids in a more direct manner and link it to the academic side. Now, having said that, to answer your question, one thing we've learned that is that academic success is one of our best social skills, social-emotional learning, school climate-developing tools When kids are academically successful, they tend to do very well in classrooms. They tend to have better self-concepts. They tend to be able to navigate those environments better. The challenge, of course, is that you can't teach if you don't have the kids' attention, if they're not in the seat or if they're not even in the school, which is the topic for today. And I think that means that we as schools need to actually think about academic learning and social skills learning as being one and the same. You've got to do both at the same time in order to maximize both. Now, what we're learning now is that 
social skills instruction needs to become much more explicit and deliberate within our schools because kids are coming to schools not having the skills to navigate being in a group of 26 kids, being able to handle the stress that was mentioned earlier. So I think, you know, what we're learning about academic success, what we're learning about social behavior success has become much more formalized in our approach to classroom management. So when we talk about zero-tolerance policies earlier and also just uh, the rate of suspensions, whether it's young children or kids in high school, mm-hmm. um, what are, again, so when you go into a school, I mean, how, how do you help teachers, principals, school boards figure out, you know, if there's trauma in a child's home, if they're acting out because of, you know, something happening, right. what's the best way forward? Right. I think there's two steps to the process. One is what we've learned is that you've got to create this basic foundation for which kids can be successful. That's prevention, if you want to call it that. It's about creating a positive school-wide climate for all children. Once that's established, once most kids are being supported academically and behaviorally, what happens then is we are better able to look at kids who come in with risk. That could be disability. That could be family. That could be community. That could be a number of factors. But it's easier to identify those factors that are contributing to kids' difficulty in school if you're working within a classroom or school that's more proactive and positive. Now, the reason I bring that up is because many of our schools where we have high rates of discipline referrals, out-of-school suspensions, and so forth, tend to be places that have negative classroom and school climates. So then you've got this context in which there's a greater likelihood of problem behaviors occurring, less likelihood of being able to serve those children. We're getting a number of calls. I'm going to ask our callers just to be patient. I'll get to you in just a moment. But I wanted to go back to something Mickey Kramer said. So in 2005, your office started noticing that there are a lot of suspensions of especially young children. Fast forward to 2015, the state now has a law that will um, restrict how schools suspend young children unless there's some you know, violent act that has been perpetrated. But it's still an issue. Right, correct. And, and in fact, while, while this is forward progress, and, and we certainly want to continue forward progress, it's still very concerning that when we think about that the language, the statutory language is really that, that it, it speaks to the child's conduct is of a violent or sexual nature that endangers person. And we have to go back to we are talking about children between the ages of three and seven. What does that mean? When a child is, is behaving in such a violent way um, or, or is sexually inappropriate, that is absolutely not typical behavior of that age group. And, and, and sometimes the, the response of excluding the child from school, while it has all of those academic sequelae and, and, and social sequelae, it also may be sending that child back into something that is unsafe. So it, it, 100% of the time, it requires assessment. We have to assess what's going on. And keep that child as close to us as possible instead of excluding away. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about uh, school discipline approaches and the context of zero-tolerance policies across the country. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I want to take a call now. Veronica is calling from Newtown. Veronica, you're on Where We Live. Thank you so much. Um, I just wanted to share a story uh, for when my daughter was a, a freshman in high school um, when she discovered that one of her friends um, had stolen a bottom of prescription pills from her parents' medicine cabinet and was selling the, the pills, uh, this is oxycodone, selling the pills to her friends in high school. And my daughter went to the principal and told the principal, and she was almost suspended for doing that. And um, they were ready to suspend her. They called me, they brought me in, and, of course, you know, I just... 
<laughs> it was the wrath of the mother, you know, that stopped it, I believe. But but that's really what how everything evolved, and it was just not right. Mm-hmm. So that's it. Thank you. Thank you, Veronica. Another call. Uh, Garland is calling from Stanford. Garland, you're on Where We Live. Hi. Um, I am... Uh, I'm calling from a nonprofit in Stanford called Domus, and we operate alternative charter schools for young people who have been traumatized and have a lot of academic, social, emotional, and behavioral struggles as a result of that. We've developed a family advocate model. These are trained professionals who work on removing the non-academic barriers to success for a young person, such as mental health issues, health issues, um, lack of insurance. Um, family struggles in the home, such as mental illness or domestic violence. So these folks are working in the schools, before school, after school, during school, on the weekend, being a resource to young people, developing trusting relationships with these children and their families so that we can intervene before things get too critical, before a young person needs to be removed. Um, we, we have a, a zero-tolerance policy, actually, for removal of a child unless it's absolutely mandated. Um, by state law. We're working to keep kids in the classroom so that they can learn. Six years ago, we became a trauma-informed model so that we could understand um, what trauma does to a young person's brain, how it affects their behavior, and how we could most uh, effectively address their behavior. So just wanted folks to know that there are a lot of successful models out there, including becoming a trauma-informed organization that can support children and their families as they're in crisis. Thank you for your call. Uh, George, did you want to follow yeah, up on that? I, you know, those both callers have pretty important messages, I think. One is that there are evidence-based effective interventions and strategies, therapies and programs and so forth. I think one of the things that it's important to think about is to what extent kids get access to those interventions and, and practices. Much of the work that we focus on is improving the teaching and learning environments for children to give teachers and administrators the tools to be able to respond in a proactive and preventative manner. I like Veronica's comment about a, uh, how the schools responded in that it suggests to me that if the, if the only thing you know how to do is to ask questions and to punish, that's what you're going to end up doing. Much of our work is about making sure schools have the strategies available to them and they're very fluent at using them. I think it's pretty important to understand that discipline and uh, reprimands and consequences don't teach very well. What they do is signal a child that they've made a mistake. You've broken a rule, you've made a mistake, you've made an error. But it doesn't really help the student learn a better way to solve that problem in the future. And I think the zero tolerance policies that the state of Connecticut has put in place are great ways to signal that we've got a way, we need to let kids know they're making mistakes or that they need supports. But we also have to step up and say, well, what are we going to do instead to help these children be successful? Some of those students are going to need more than what we offer in schools through our general academic curriculum. And that is, that's where school psych and special ed, ed psych, and also mental health workers come into play. Are schools more receptive uh, to these, um, you know, different resources uh, when there are problems in the classroom? Are you seeing that, George? I think schools are very interested and passionate, enthusiastic about responding. I think the challenge becomes one of ensuring that they have the opportunity to, to learn about them and to use them. And when I say that, I think there are many great practices, but there are too many being implemented at the same time. And oftentimes, those many interventions don't align with the need of a school. So I love the idea of trauma-informed interventions. I love the idea of bullying. I love the idea of social emotion. I love the idea of character. I love the idea of school climate. You can't do all those at the same time. 
And what we've learned is not all schools need all of those at the same time. And we've been helping schools be more strategic about selecting the smallest thing that you can do to have the biggest effect. To get very concrete and then to end, what we've learned is if teachers meet and greet their kids at the front door on a regular basis, if they make sure that every group starts with a positive comment, it starts the chain of building a positive climate. It makes it work in the context of academic success and social success. So you got to help teachers and schools identify the best thing they can do to have the biggest effect. More is not better in your, when you're talking about the complex environments of teaching and learning. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I wanted to go now to Rob from Waterford. Rob, you're on Where We Live. Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I've got a, a, a young uh, male child uh, who's seven now. Um, and from, from a very early age, it was obvious that there was something going on for him. Um, we've sought both private and through the school systems uh, uh, help trying to figure this out. And, um, you know, basically our son has sensory sensitivity issues that started from traumatic birth and continued on into his development years. And, you know, the first school system that we had him in uh, didn't have the, the resources to put into him, and so as his behaviors were causing disruption, you know, there was isolationism for him. There was uh, the inability for that school to really focus in on on uh, how to how to help him through these challenges. Uh, since then, we've we've moved him to actually our public school system, where there's a great support team for him, and and he's flourished in that. So I think a lot of this definitely depends on the staffing levels and programs that these schools have in place and how well they're laid out for kids who have these kinds of issues. Um, you know, our son having the sensory sensitivity stuff, you know, he had what what uh, was basically termed as fight-or-flight reactions to things, and so he had a lot of physicality in his, uh, in his reactions to things. He also was uh, speech-delayed, and so between, you know, not being able to express himself verbally, uh, that all came out physically. And, you know, I just have to give the people that have worked with him a lot of kudos because, you know, instead of putting him off to the side in a box or, or putting him in a punishing way, they've, they've really helped him explore himself. And at, at the age of seven now, he's, he's flourishing. So. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you for your call, Rob. Um, you know, obviously he found a place for his son that's working, Mickey Kramer, Associate uh, Child Advocate for the state of Connecticut. Not all parents can move, though, to find a, a, a good placement for the child. What then? That's that's correct, and I think what um, what that dad just just shared with us was um, that people took the time to figure out and to try and understand that child, and so we hear a lot of terms like sensory and and um, trauma. The child's been traumatized, and and you know I actually even had one teacher one time to say to me, you know, when I asked, do you, what do you know about this child? What do you know in terms of does this child have any mental health issues or whatever? Well, I know he has PTSD. So so, so my next question was, well, what does that mean? How does that inform then? It's like when a child has autism. How does that inform then everything about the way you think? And so, you know, I, I, but I also have to say that, you know, we've spent a lot of time in the Office of the Child Advocate over the last few years visiting schools, visiting, you know, early childhood programs right up through, you know, uh, 
programs that are serving up to 21-year-olds. And I, I don't know that I've ever encountered a teacher or a school professional that didn't want to do the right thing. Um, what I do see them is starved for resources in, in many settings, particularly the most burdened and, 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 and struggling settings, um, and, and, and really um, unaware of the external resources that can be brought in um, or that should be brought in, and we're not doing that in Connecticut. We're not bringing in the plethora of, of, of mental health and family support and parenting resources that we have available in our communities to help everybody do better by children. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, schools, I think, are really unique in that, you know, they, 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 are, they feel very, very alone in their, in their, in their, in their, uh, in their uh, journey and to, to do what they have to do for kids. And, and yet they, the schools exist within communities. And those communities, Connecticut has spent a lot of time and a lot of money over the last many years building capacity in our communities. We're not anywhere near where we want to be. But in fact, if we were to really take a look for each school, what do you have? Perhaps our teachers, our school professionals, our special educators wouldn't feel so alone in, in their journey. So I think that that's what we really try and do is we, tr- we try to bring people to the table. I want to thank Mickey Kramer, Associate Child Advocate for Connecticut. Also, George Sagai, Professor of Special Education at UConn. He's going to stick around with us uh, when we turn from the break. We're going to check in with the Connecticut Judicial Branch. How should courts deal with kids who've been arrested in school? This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we've been talking about how schools choose to discipline students for problem behavior and how those decisions can impact their futures in a negative way. Research shows suspending a student makes him or her more likely to be suspended again, more likely to end up in juvenile court, more likely to drop out. Now, how does Connecticut's judicial branch work with schools and police to keep kids out of the juvenile justice system? Kathy Foley-Geib, Assistant Director of Juvenile and Family Services at the Connecticut Judicial Branch, joins us now. Kathy, welcome to where we live. Thank you. We just have a, you know, we have a short on time, so I wanted to jump right into uh, when you, you told our producer back in 2011, the judicial branch actually issued a letter to schools and police departments. What prompted that letter? What was the court's message to them? Yes. So back in 2011, at the beginning of the year, we really started to track the number of referrals that were coming to court for children who were being arrested in school. Uh, because we were noticing as we were talking to our field staff, the probation officers, that a lot of kids seemed to be getting arrested for minor incidents in school, like running down the hall, about um, having open soda bottles or not taking off their hat when they've been told to. Um, so it was very concerning to think that sort of these m- minimal type of behaviors, though disruptive, were still being referred to court. So um, when we started collecting the data, we saw that there was a significant number of kids who were coming into the system um, in just a short very period of time. And we really worked closely with the chief court administrator at the time um, to um, take a look at our um, state law and the policies over um, that determine what gets intaked into the court. Um, and it was determined that the probation supervisors who do the intake for the juvenile courts really had the authority to turn back referrals that weren't appropriate. And so the chief court administrator um, was very supportive and had sent a letter to all the superintendents of schools in Connecticut and all the police chiefs indicating that if it was determined that a referral didn't warrant um, court intervention, that it would be returned to the source. 
Um, and that was really um, a, a strong effort and message that we were trying to send to communities, that though there may be problematic behaviors in schools, there are different ways of dealing with those behaviors. And referring a child to court for those types of behaviors really wasn't the best use of the court's resources, really wasn't in the best interest of the child long term, because we certainly don't want kids to have records. And ultimately, um, we really need to think differently about how communities can support kids at school. So what was the reaction from, uh, you know, SROs and uh, individual schools? Um, I think the message um, certainly was heard. Um, I think, you know, certain districts were um, more open to it than others. Uh, But there certainly were certain schools and certain police departments that were concerned about, you know, well, what do we do with these children now? Um, So at the same time that we were setting a boundary about um, what was appropriate to refer to the court, we were also supporting communities in expanding their juvenile review boards, um, expanding other diversion types of services in the community. We also had been working on um, an initiative called the School-Based Diversion Initiative that had gotten funded by the MacArthur Foundation to go into um, willing school districts and willing schools and work with staff, um, school staff, around being able to manage classroom behavior better, be able to understand adolescent development and behavioral health issues, and bring in community resources to respond to kids in crisis or to respond to kids who are being disruptive. And that resource, that primary resource being emergency mobile psych services, which is a free resource that's available to anyone in the state, um, regardless of income, and uh, wasn't being heavily utilized by schools. And I really wanted to work with schools um, to call their EMPS provider and have that mental health professional come assess the situation and refer the child to behavioral health services if that was warranted. Uh, George Sagai, who's uh, still with us again, he's director of the Center for Behavioral Education and Research, co-director of the Center of Positive Behavioral Interventions and Supports at University of Connecticut. Um, Kathy mentioned this uh, emergency mobile psychiatric services or EMPS. Is this an effective tool? I think there are a number of examples like that that are effective tools. I think the thing I mentioned earlier is the context in which it's being used. I think a lot of those strategies are effective. The challenge, of course, is that they're reactive. They're after the fact in that there's a kid posing a problem. Much of the work that we do is focusing on early screening for children to identify what the risk factors are. Uh, We think about two things when we do our work. One is how do we prevent the development of antisocial or difficult behaviors in children who are doing okay? And then the second part we focus on are what do we do about those kids who come in with risk factors that increase their vulnerability to become unsuccessful or have challenges at school and decrease the likelihood of those things getting worse so that we don't have to call in the outside. So I like to think about that as sort of three-tiered. What do we do for all kids to keep them on the side of the force, if you will. What do we do for some of those kids who pose some risk? And what are those things that we need to put in place for those kids who already present some significant challenges? If you think about that sort of three-tiered logic, the investment is really in tier one. How do we make sure most kids are going to be successful early in their school career or early in the school year or early in the day? One analogy I like to think about is we all set alarm clocks to get up on time. Some of us set two alarm clocks to get on time. And some of us married our alarm clock. And what the example that why that's important is because we have to have a range of interventions, sometimes more intense than others, but they're all proactive, catching it before it gets worse. We know early in intervention makes sense. It's important. But for the kids that the juvenile justice system is seeing, by then they're in, in their teens and they may have not gotten that kind of intervention. What then for them? To me, there's still a prevention link to those kids who already present risks. If I'm going to have a student come back to the school because they've been out for whatever reason, 
I know there's some things I can do to prevent that from getting worse, and I know there's some things I can do to prevent it from happening again in the future. That probably means I need to provide, as the previous discussion has been about, more intensive supports, which is good because we want to be proactive about that. I wanted to ask you, Kathy, because you represent um, the Connecticut Judicial Branch, we know there have been layoffs. Is this impacting any of these prevention programs that the Judicial Branch uses to reach um, children uh, and and teens that we don't want to see in the juvenile court system? Yeah, I mean, certainly um, budget reductions of our contracted program and services has certainly had an impact of what's available um, to the court and to the probation department if a child is referred. Um, So certainly that is a concern. Um, I know that communities and schools are concerned about the budget cuts that they've seen as a result as well as the state budget. Um, And right now there's um, legislation that was passed um, this past legislative session, um, Public Act 16147, that calls for the Development of a community-based diversion um, system so that it prevents everything from um, any type of arrest except for a serious juvenile offense coming into the court system. So it's really about developing the services in the community so the communities can provide both the prevention and intervention services that are necessary to keep kids away from the court. So there's a really co- a lot of concern about that, that that will be properly funded. Um, and so certainly the budget situation does impact what we're able to do. Well, I want to thank you, Kathy Foley-Guy, the Assistant Director of Juvenile and Family Services at the Connecticut Judicial Branch. Thank you for coming in today. Okay. And George Sagai, Professor of Special Education at the University of Connecticut, also Director of the Center for Behavioral Education and Research, Co-Director of the Center of Positive Behavioral Interventions and Supports. We appreciate your perspective today. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Continue this conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>